someone who uses metal straws and doesn't have Ziploc bags anymore and has gone plastic free, but has a summer house and a ski house and a city house is by default not incredibly sustainable compared to someone who uses those Ziploc bags and has more plastic in their life, but they live in a small apartment in New York City and don't own a car. Welcome to another episode of The Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. What if we had a bank of consumer goods sustainability ratings so that we could compare products' environmental impacts without having to rely on shady marketing or generic symbols? And what if that bank of ratings was crowdsourced in the same manner that individual people built Wikipedia, Reddit, and Waze And then we combine those efforts with machine learning, artificial intelligence, and good old-fashioned expertise. Well, what you would get is Finch. On the show today is Lizzie Horvitz, CEO and founder of Finch. Finch aims to decode sustainability and empower consumers to make better purchasing decisions. Lizzie started Finch in March of 2020 to educate people on the ins and outs of sustainability by turning complex scientific facts into simple, actionable insights. Launching as a browser extension, Finch fuses expert scores on products' environmental and social impacts with functional reviews from real people. Lizzie has been passionate about sustainability since the age of 16, when she lived off the grid. Dependent only on wind energy and rainwater, she saw the solution of climate change before fully understanding the problem. Prior to Finch, Lizzie worked in a supply chain and sustainability role at Unilever, and then became chief operating officer at Muse a startup that aims to mitigate single-use plastics in the to-go industry. She has a BA from Middlebury College and an MBA and a Master's of Environmental Management from Yale University. During the interview, Lizzie and I discuss her sustainability journey, including how she pivoted internally into a very exclusive corporate sustainability role at Unilever, why she hates the marketing phrase chemical-free, and her framework for making an environmentally conscious purchase. Of course, we also get into how Finch is bringing the world closer to net-zero emissions. Before we jump into the episode, a quick message from Climate People, my favorite climate-focused recruiting agency. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you are a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Climate People is also looking to hire recruiters so they can place even more talented people in roles that move the world closer to net zero emissions. If you or someone you know is interested in recruiting for the top climate-focused recruiting agency, get in touch with Climate People founder Brendan Anderson via email brendan at climatepeople.com. Okay, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lizzie Horvitz, CEO and founder of Finch. Lizzie, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm super pumped. I saw... You've been working on climate slash the environment for 11 years. Let me know if I I don't have that correctly, but I'm curious what sparked your carbon consciousness and then was it like a person, a book? And then how did that lead into you now launching Finch? Sure. I have actually been working on sustainability for uh, 17 years since I was 16 years old. Um, Really passionate about climate mitigation in the private sector. And this started when I was 16. Um, I was able to 
do a thing called the Island School, which is a semester program in the Bahamas. Um, I was at the same school from preschool through 12th grade. And in ninth grade, I was thinking about switching schools or just having some sort of shift. As you can imagine, being in the same school with 60 girls for your entire life can get a little old. Um, And so my parents gave me this incredible opportunity to go to the semester school. The island school was completely self-sustainable. It was run on wind generators, solar panels. Um, All of the water we used to shower came from the rain. So if it didn't rain, we didn't shower. And this was 2004. And so if you remember back to that time, climate change was certainly not top of mind like it is today. It wasn't covering the headlines. And so I think when most people think of climate change, or when most people are exposed to it, they see the fear, they see wildfires and climate refugees and all these terrible things that can be really overwhelming. But I saw this beautiful way to live that doesn't sacrifice um, the needs of future generations. And so, um, you know, I saw the solution before I fully understood the problem. And that's really what sparked my interest. Do you think that there's a future where everyone will only shower if there's enough rain Uh, or, or, and like that kind of exploded, like, is there a future where people are making decisions based off of, um, based off of like what's available versus kind of what's, what their needs are? It's a really good question. I don't think that will ever happen at scale. I think, I think the technology will, um, will solve a lot of these problems where, you know, um, we don't need to have, we don't need people to sacrifice their everyday lives um, or completely change their behaviors to make progress. I think that will happen in the governmental and private sectors. And hopefully um, that will sort of take care of that. I do think there are certain things that we will look back on as old people and say, I can't believe that we thought that that was normal. I think one of those things is participating in the factory farm industry. I think it's so commonplace now, but that's the type of thing like we think of, you know, civil rights or racial justice. That's so second nature to to people of our generation. I think um, our grandchildren will be thinking, you know, I I cannot believe that you that you ate that way. What do you think the future is going to look like? Are people just going to stop eating meat altogether? or Is there going to be a way to like support the meat consumption through some sort of sustainable farming? I think regenerative agriculture is a huge solution to this. Um, and so I, I see that as a part of the puzzle. I don't think people will stop eating meat. I think what will happen is people will eat better, better meat, um, and less of it. So instead of having cheap bacon every single day for breakfast, you're going to have really good bacon once a week. Um, and that's going to come from a humane farm where I care a lot about animal welfare along with the environmental implications of, of raising animals. And so I just think the I just think that will be a shift. That will be really interesting. Finch is based in New York, correct? We are technically based in New York. That's where our you know legal address is. We actually are are fairly remote. I'm I'm in New York. Okay. Um, where in New York are you? I'm in Manhattan, right near Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. Okay. If you were to like walk up uh, a 14 story building and you were stuck in the stairs with someone because like you know it's a, a beautiful old New York building and they didn't have an elevator. Uh, and you met someone that you never met before, and they asked you, like, what have you accomplished in your climate career so far? What would you say? Well, that's such a good question. I would say there are two things that stand out in pretty different ways. Um, the first is 
The first is working at Unilever in their supply chain team. Um, I was coming out of business school. I wanted nothing more than to work for Unilever on their sustainability team. That was the, the dream. I think when I applied to Yale for grad school, that was probably what I wrote about was being on the sustainability team somehow and working. But those jobs, as you know, are pretty hard to get, particularly um, if you're coming from not within Unilever. They're almost impossible to get if you're just you know, recruiting normally. And so to get my foot in the door, I worked on the supply chain team. And if we're being totally transparent, I, I, did, I took that role to get me to the next step, to get me to be on the sustainability team. I wasn't necessarily interested in, in supply chain per se, but I think working on that team and understanding how to move massive product around um, was a pretty amazing accomplishment, I think, in a couple of ways. The first is just purely by scale, when you make a change in the cold chain industry, when you're when you decide that it's okay that ice cream is um, you know, at X temperature and not at Y anymore, that can have massive global implications for climate change in a really cool way. Um, And then I also think that just being understanding what it's like to be a cog in the wheel really internally surrounded by people who are not thinking top of mind around climate um, was a really important perspective for me for the rest of my career, where now I actually understand the priorities and challenges that everyday workers have to go through when they're not, you know, just thinking about sustainability. Um, I think the other big shift was the opportunity to join this very small startup called Muse, which was based in Indonesia, Hong Kong, and Singapore. I joined the team, um, I think after only five months, um, and became chief operating officer pretty quickly. Uh, I think my parents were like, what the heck just happened? You were like this random role at Unilever. And then all of a sudden you're your chief operating officer. And that just gave me insight into how to, um, how to take a company from inception to scale when you literally have almost nothing, how you grow it, scale it, make it a global, um, a global company. And that that gave me the opportunity to really start Finch. I would have never had the confidence to do that had I not worked in the startup space. And so um, I'll I'll always be grateful for that opportunity. And that, that I think will make me have a much larger impact in the climate space. When you were at Unilever, were like, what was the persistence of sustainability throughout the organization? And did it, like, did you leave Unilever feeling more optimistic or less optimistic about kind of like big corporations? Ooh, Nathan, I could talk about this for hours. Um, I think Unilever really walks the talk. Um, Paul Pullman was just leaving as I was just leaving. And so he was there for most of my time. And he is truly inspirational um, in terms of the way he runs a company. But what he's been able to do, Paul Pullman, I'm sorry, was the CEO of Unilever for, um, for several years. And he really prioritized climate change as his main focus. Um, Unilever wants to make sustainability commonplace, right? They want to sell products that do good, but still deliver the best experience. Um, And I love that, you know, people buy Ben and Jerry's because it's the tastiest ice cream, not because they're fighting for racial justice. And people, um, people love Hellman's mayonnaise because it's great on sandwiches, not because they're using cage-free eggs. And so I think understanding how that worked, how you could really scale and do good 
um, was pretty inspiring. I, I only have good things to say about Unilever as a whole. I think um, I did walk away not ever wanting to work at a massive company again. So I think that's worth noting. And I, I don't think, you know, I, I've only worked at Unilever for more than I've had internships at larger companies, but really only had more than a year at Unilever. Um, but I have to say, I think they do it better than, than a lot of the other companies. They're just the leader in the space. And so it did leave me feeling a little depressed about the state of the, of corporate America, to be honest, where um, even with co- when companies put their best foot forward and have all of the support, including the CEO and the board behind them, it still can be really challenging to do what they want. Did Do you channel kind of any of that disappointment into Finch? Yes. I think our business model is based around providing companies insights um, so that they can make more informed decisions. And right now, part of the struggle was that Unilever, like every other company, had such a hard time understanding what customers actually wanted. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on focus groups um, where people would say, of course, I would pay a premium for, you know, um, chemical-free body wash or what have you. Chemical-free is a terrible example. I hope we get into that later. But these buzzwords, people would say, you know, I want to spend money on sustainable products. Um, but then at checkout, they wouldn't, it would be a very different story. And that gap is almost 50%. Um, and so that leaves companies really confused around, okay, we only have X amount of real estate on our packaging. What's most important to share and where do we want to focus? Um, and I think that Finch can really be that unlock where we can say, okay, people actually given their shopping habits that we're, that we're observing in our browser extension, um, people care twice as much about the end of life than about what ingredients are used in these particular products, et cetera. And here's how to market to them and, and here's where to focus. So I think that, um, yeah, I definitely channel that. I also think, you know, I want to help everybody. I don't want to put, you know, a Unilever at a disadvantage for the sake of, you know, lifting up other groups. I want to make sure that it's equal, but I will say, I think one of our challenges, but one of our goals is making sure that smaller companies get the same exposure as the large ones, which is why sometimes if someone's looking for Dove soap, we could say, Hey, have you tried this tiny startup, um, you know, in Minneapolis, um, so that people have, you know, we can just help get, give more exposure. Yeah. And there's so much to unpack there. Um, and I think I'm just going to let you jump into chemical free, but like other things that I want to make sure we talk about, you mentioned like end of life, you mentioned that Finch is providing insights to companies, but also consumers. So we're going to kind of jump into there as well. And, and then you also like talked about your, like your mental framework for like how to think about a product, all of that we're going to get into. And I, I want to jump into chemical free, but really quick before we go, um, you know, doing my research, I came across something like incredibly interesting, which was your uh, public Spotify playlists. Uh, which include um, Earth Day, The Right to Shower, and Shut Up and Drive. I- I'm pretty sure that was your profile. Uh, and so I'd love to know, I mean, Earth Day is pretty self-explanatory and it makes sense. Like, of course, on brand, the CEO of a sustainability company has an Earth Day playlist. But what is The Right to Shower? Oh my gosh, that is so funny. Um, 
there is a lot to unpack there. So Earth Day and The Right to Shower were actually both Unilever playlists. I am a huge music fan. I live and breathe by Spotify, but I don't use the public playlist very much. And so those are really funny examples. The Right to Shower is an incredible brand that I was able to work on at Unilever. It was um, this woman named Laura Fruitman, who's such a hero of mine. She's a couple years older. She's been at Unilever for a long time. And she grew up in New York City and was incredibly uh, disheartened by the homeless population. Um, you know, people would walk by every single day, all these homeless people, they wouldn't look them in the eye. It's like this, this thing in big cities, particularly, you know, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, where you almost, you, you almost pretend that they don't exist. And it's a terrible feeling I can imagine for homeless people. Um, so, you know, we hear about food, uh, you know, we hear about homeless people needing food and shelter. What we don't hear about is, their need to clean themselves. Um, a lot of these people are getting off the streets, needing to go to job interviews and meeting important people, and they have no ability to do that. And so there are these mobile shower stations um, where anybody who needs it can go shower, clean themselves up, and then go on with their day, do whatever they need to do. So Laura began, and this is, I mean, you don't, maybe people don't know enough about how Unilever works internally or how these massive companies works to start a brand within a company like that is, is almost impossible. It's, it's almost unheard of. And Laura was just so inspired by this. Um, and she finally got the green light from, from the right person that she basically created a bar of soap and also a, um, soap dispenser that are, incredibly sustainable. They meet the whole food standards, which are not easy to do. And then a portion of the proceeds go to support these mobile shower stations. Um, and so that playlist is, was for our, I think, right to shower launch celebration when I worked on it. And the first song on the playlist is Shotgun by George Ezra, which I am a huge fan. Uh, I heard the song Such for the first time. One. Yeah, I heard it in Ashland, Oregon, if you've ever been there, which is like a super hippy dippy town uh, and uh -huh. everyone should go to. Um, okay. But that's also funny. I should just add, that's yeah. also funny that you brought that up. I just gave us talk yesterday and, and mentioned this. Um, when I was at the Island school, it didn't rain for like 14 days. And so we literally didn't shower. We went in the ocean, but we, we didn't shower for a very long period of time. And still 17 years later, that has kind of stuck with me where like, it's not that important to shower. And, um, so in my, obviously for certain populations and other people, that's something that I care quite a bit about, but in my own personal life, um, that's sort of a joke among my family and friends that I, I'm not the biggest person who showers. Mm, well, I just read The Rock showers three times a day. Uh, he does cold to wake up, then like warm after his workout, and then hot before he goes to bed to exfoliate. Oh, wow. I know. I know. I personally started showering every day because I stopped wearing deodorant during the pandemic. And now I like really have to kind of get in there and, and clean. So, um, okay, let's get into chemical free. Why is chemical free a bad example from a sustainability or product, um, a product insight perspective? So I think part of the reason we were so excited to start Finch is that there's such a problem with greenwashing. Um, there is very little regulation among products um, in the non-food space to determine whether something is really impactful or not from an environmental standpoint. Um, and so because of that, there's really nothing stopping people from labeling things eco-friendly or all natural. And so 
chemical free is particularly bothersome because chemicals are all around us. Chemicals are what we are all made of. Baking soda and lemon juice are two examples of chemicals that are not harmful to put in your body. And so this movement we're moving towards, which is clean beauty or or clean products without chemicals is simply incorrect. Um, And then furthermore, of course, there are, you know, endocrine disruptors and other uh, dangerous chemicals that we should absolutely avoid. But there are also plant-based, plant-based things that should be avoided as well. So palm oil is a perfect example of something that is completely natural. Um, It's grown uh, and it is incredibly harmful to extract and comes with a series of massive environmental problems. And so you know, if a product is chemical free, but made with palm oil, that's pretty problematic. That's why Finch is, is partly trying to exist is to be that third party to tell you, okay, this, this is actually what this means. Um, and these are the things that you don't need to, to worry as much about. And I'll say for people who are looking for like a quick deep dive into palm oil and why it's bad, uh, the New York times did a great article about, um, uh, which called rainforest clearing in Indonesia to make way for palm uh, for palm trees, and then how it impacted like indigenous nations and like the all the politics and like slide dealing that went on within there. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Um, we're talking about Finch. Why don't we step back for a second and say like, what is Finch and like what is Finch trying to do? Sure. When I was at Unilever, it was. 2016 when I started. So Trump had just become president and people were realizing that the government was not uh, doing as much about climate change as they should be. And people and companies were taking it into their own hands. And so for the first time, I had several family and friends coming to me saying, um, you know, just what can I do to reduce my footprint? What what should I be buying? Why is there aluminum in my deodorant? Should I be buying cloth diapers? Everything in between. And I loved answering these questions and have all the answers. And I found that it was very difficult to find them online because the content was incredibly split. On the one hand, you had these wonky academic scientists who aren't very good at communicating things in human terms. And then on the other side, you have this rise of bloggers who are incredibly well-intentioned, but they are saying things like eco-friendly, all natural, um, and they're not really using data-based science. Um, and so I started a newsletter aiming to distill this type of information in an accessible way. That newsletter took me through the startup uh, called Muse. And finally, I realized there was such a need for this. I was wondering what, what were all these people doing that didn't know me personally and that didn't have me on speed dial, who are they going to for this information? And so Finch is basically trying to decode products, environmental and social impacts to empower consumers to make better decisions. So on the one hand, we have this browser extension where you download it on your desktop. And then when you're shopping on Amazon, hopefully more e-com sites in the future, but right now we're just on Amazon, you would type in, you know, uh, Dove body wash. That's an example we've been using. And then we would show you what the Dove score gets, um, why we like it, what could be better about it. And then in case you're interested, we give you three alternatives um, if you would like to make a different decision um, on your purchase. 
So that's the product itself. That's powered by machine learning. Um, we rate products in a way that's 10% manual, 90% automated. And that is, that's the core of our, of our company. We also have this data platform. I'm sorry, this content platform where we are trying to become the source on anything under the sun, you know, regardless of whether they're product or consumer focused or not. So eventually we'd like to become the place where you go when you say, can I recycle this, you know, specific box in Seattle or what's the update on the IPCC report, et cetera. Right now, what's really exciting is there are a lot of people who are trying to do bits and pieces of this, but nobody is trying to do exactly what we're trying to do. And so there's a big white space that we're really excited about tackling. There's a lot there. Why don't we start with um, like making an environmental and socially informed decision? Like what goes into, from the, from the back end, from your standpoint, what goes into um, to like giving a, giving a product a score? And then maybe if you can talk about a little about like kind of like the mental model that you've built, um, like on the website, Finch talks about like making it, moving it, buying it, using it and ditching it. Like, how did you come up with that? Why is that the right framework for thinking about environmental and social impacts? Absolutely. So I'll start with that first. We have realized, honestly, it started anecdotally, but we've also gotten research on this since then, that explaining something in terms of carbon emissions does not resonate with the consumers. Saying, you know, you saved a ton of carbon is really difficult to um, sort of understand. Even for me who studied this in graduate school, it's, it's something that you really have to wrap your head around. And so we tried to think of different ways to communicate the different aspects of a product life cycle. And so landed on um, making it, moving it, uh, use, buying it, using it, ditching it, um, these five factors. So making it is everything company level related. So is it B Corp certified? And then also, of course, what are the ingredients and materials that go into that product? Moving it is transportation and distribution. Right now, we actually don't have the capabilities to test that. We don't have the right data in place, but eventually we'd like to get to the point where we are seeing um, you know, last mile delivery and the, the score for you in Seattle is going to be different than me in New York. Um, the next one is buying it. Uh, this is actually a social factor. So most of our inputs are environmental. Um, but we believe that accessibility is incredibly important to the climate movement and climate justice is something that we care deeply about. Um, marginalized communities have been more affected by climate change and they actually care more about it in a lot of studies. And so what I'm trying to, what my team is really trying to do is prove that you don't need to be Gwyneth Paltrow or a white upper middle class woman to care about sustainability and to be a part of the movement. And so if something is made with all the right materials, that's great. But if it's only accessible to the top 1% of the population, that's by default, not sustainable in our definition. And so buying it really just focuses on accessibility and price. Um, using it is twofold. It's both what's happening in the use phase um, once you own the product. So uh, think of charging an iPad or washing a pair of jeans. Um, and then it's also actually, do people like it? What's the function and quality? Because such a huge part of sustainability is that you need to use things until 
they're unusable, right? You need to use every last drop of that Dove soap and you need to reuse your water bottle X amount of times to offset its footprint. And so if people buy products that they don't like or that don't work, that's worse for sustainability than anything else. And so we have our own internal group of people called the charm that I would ask these listeners to join um, who can sign up to rate these products. um, And, and we would put that directly into the rating. And then finally ditching it is just end of life. Is it recyclable? Um, Again, with the localized options, we'd like to get to a point where we say, you know, we know the recycling stream in this municipality, so it's not recyclable there, but it is in other places, et cetera. And then also what's the circularity of it, et cetera. And we've just found that using normal words like making it, ditching it, um, has really resonated that people understand what we're talking about. Uh, so many questions I want to ask you. Um, I, how do you translate, I guess, like what's the framework you've built in terms of translating sustainability sectors or verticals like carbon, circularity, water, waste, um, into your model and then how do you weight it and how do you tie it back to kind of like whatever those like traditional sustainability, uh, verticals are? Sure. So what's unique about Finch is that we take each product category uh, as its own set of, of issues. So we will look at detergent differently than paper towels, differently than toilet paper. And so the way we first rate these products is we do a deep dive into what factors impact a specific product category. Um, we'll use a ton of academic research, NGO reports, whatever we can get our hands on, um, mostly peer-reviewed information, to determine what the largest impact spaces are. So with detergent, for example, we would look at what kind of ingredients is it made of? What effect do the in- ingredients have on our health or on the area in which we live? What kind of packaging does it come in? Um, what's the carbon footprint of, as we mentioned, you know, making it, using it, ditching it? Um, how much pollution does this product create? What type of transportation is used to get me this product, et cetera, et cetera. We then, given what academia is telling us, we give those unique ratings, um, and, or I'm sorry, weightings. And so we would say, and I don't know off the top of my head, but we would say the ingredient impact of detergent is twice as important as um, the packaging that it comes in. And so we're going to give that a different weight. And so that's all the manual work that we do. And once we have those weightings, we then feed that into our machine learning model. Um, And then our machine learning model scrapes information off of the public domain, whether that's an Amazon webpage or um, our larger database that already has information on other, other brands and, and products and can rate every product on Amazon, um, within a couple of days. And then can, when you look at a product, can you kind of intuit the sustainability score right away because of your background in the space, or does it take kind of like that deeper, de- deeper dive into the data to get the confidence level to say this sustainability or environmental score is 4.5 out of five? It's a really interesting question and it's changing, to be honest. I would like to get to a point where the data, the machine learning model knows more than I do um, because I'm not very good at looking at something and assuming um, what the impacts are. I mean, there are certain things that are just, that are pretty obvious, like something coming in a paper packaging instead of a plastic packaging or something that's light versus heavy, et cetera. There are certain things that I can intuit from that, but... um, 
So in the beginning, when we were still training our machine, our model, um, we were using our own experiences to, um, to sort of test it, right? If something, if, if for instance, tied detergent got an amazing score of 9.5, we would be like, I think there's something off here. Um, this, this can't be the case. Right. But over time, um, there's nothing that jumps out about tied liquid detergent that makes it sustainable in any way. Um, it comes in a plastic container. It's liquid detergent that it has all the, all the nasty chemicals that we're thinking about. I hope nobody from Tide is listening to this right now. Um, and it, you know, that's, that's like, that's most of the products, right? Um, there are more products like that than that are going above and beyond. Um, and so, so over time, we're hoping to get to a point where, where we're not at quite yet, where the model is really determining what's, what the ratings are and, we're able to sit back and learn from that. Tide is a Procter and Gamble brand, is that right? Mm-hmm. So not not Unilever competitor. Yes, exactly. Do they have the same kind of like sustainable mindset over there? I assume they would. I kind of want to assume best intentions. Procter and Gamble is great. They've made so much headway in the past several decades. Um, they're a really phenomenal company. They're not where Unilever is. Unilever got this head start um, where they started working on this probably 10 years before any of the other companies did. And so a lot of these other companies, I think, look to Unilever to figure out what to do next. Um, and But, you know, Procter & Gamble is doing amazing things like they've committed to take phosphates out of all of their tide over the next two years. And so that's an interesting question that Finch has, which is, do we want to... Um, reward a company like this that has these goals that in two years it will be a better product um, or do we take the product at face value what it is right now containing phosphates um, and give it a lower score so those are the the interesting distinctions that that we're making every day yeah can tide or some like equivalent product be ever get like a high rating absolutely so so we will never give a rating we will never give a 10 rating um, nothing physical in my experience is phenomenal for the environment, right? It, everything is just like, how, how bad is it? Um, and so nothing will ever get a 10, but what's been really interesting for us to distinguish between is when you look at a category like detergents, that's a kind of a nasty category, right? Um, it, it's, you need strong chemicals to clean these stains and to, to wash your clothes, um, and so our consumer base is not the type of people where we can say detergents really bad generally. So you should make your own homemade detergent in your bathtub. That's just not the consumer base we're going after. So what we try to do is have a span where each category has, you know, almost a 10, a 9.6, 9.7, and then a two or a three. Because what would happen otherwise is all of the detergents in the space would have, you know, a two or a three. And all of the reusable water bottles would have a nine or a 10. Like you can't, we have to compare apples to apples. Um, And within each product category, we have to give consumers, um, we have to give customers options on what's the best and what's the worst. So what detergent do you use? So I really like drops. I love the, um, I love the pods. I think they're making a lot of progress on um, the plastic implications of them. And, you know, Tide Pods are actually not that bad, but I I really like drops personally. They're just a little more expensive than, than the other options. 
Lizzie and I continue the discussion after the break, where we dive into the question, do you have to pay more to have a smaller environmental impact? It's a fundamental question and one that also gets around equity in terms of the problems of climate change. We also dive into Finch's Wise Guides, where Lizzie and her team of experts have put together a breakdown of specific products, the questions you need to be thinking when purchasing them, and their recommendations for which ones are the most environmentally friendly. Are you a leader in climate who is working on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions? We would love to hear from you. Reach out via our socials or email Nathan at the net zero life to connect with our team. Is there uh, like a correlation between sustainable, like sustainability and environmentally friendly and price? Like, do you have to have more wealth in order to live like a more sustainable, good, um, sustainable goods or own more sustainable goods? No, not at all. And I actually don't believe that sustainable goods have to be more expensive. Um, I think there are some companies that put their products at a massive premium, which really only perpetuates the idea that to, to be a part of this space, you have to be of a certain population. I think taking a step back and looking at people's regular lifestyles, you know, someone who uses metal straws and has, you know, doesn't have Ziploc bags anymore and has gone plastic free, but has, you know, a summer house and a ski house and a city house is by default, not incredibly sustainable compared to someone who uses those Ziploc bags and has more plastic in their life, but they live in a small, you know, apartment in New York city and don't own a car. Right. So, you know, I think we've gone so far I studied environmental history in college. And what's been so interesting to me is to see this movement of what sustainability means to different people. And I'm sorry, I, I hope I'm not going on too much of a tangent, but I find it interesting that, you know, um, sustainability started with this sort of like hippie, mostly white, crunchy people who camped and that was not accessible, right? There were a lot of people that didn't feel like that fit into their category. And then the pendulum almost swung so far to the other side where it was this elitist feeling. And now I think we're getting into a really good space where people are prioritizing um, climate justice and these social impacts um, and also understanding how everybody can sort of be a part of the solution. If you look into the future, um, and you talked kind of about like regulation as well, uh, in terms of like the like putting the chemical free and the the eco friendly, does the future look where private labels um, are the ones that are, are determining like what's a sustainable uh, what's a sustainable good, or is it kind of like organic versus non organic? And then um, like where does Finch fit in there? I don't think private companies will be determining what's making products sustainable. I think part of the problem that's happening now is, you know, I'll take Allbirds as an example. I am such a huge fan of Allbirds. I love their shoes. Despite all of their sustainability um, work, I just love what they're all about. Um, they're putting carbon labels on their shoes, which is so cool and such an incredible movement. If other companies don't follow suit, um, then it doesn't mean anything. It's as if you're walking into a grocery store and you see that margarine has calories, but no other products do. Then you're like, I don't know how to compare margarine to butter or other similar products if it's the only one that's labeled. Um, not to mention, Allbirds is using their own methodology to rate these and another company that makes the same exact product could come out with 
a completely different answer. And so I think what's needed is a third party to level set and to tell companies, this is what you need to be looking for. And this is the most important. I think Finch, I would love if Finch took that spot. Um, I think we're, we're geared to do so. It's going to take some time, but otherwise there's really nothing stopping these companies from this sort of self-regulation. I also think what's going to become helpful is, um, is more customer demand, um, on companies being more transparent, um, where companies can't really get away with not doing this anymore. And then I think also in terms of the governmental side, I think putting a social cost on carbon, um, is not that far off. We haven't been able to do it yet, but we're moving into a really exciting direction where I think that's a possibility. And I think that will help, um, that will help level set as well. How did you, um, how do the wise guys differ from Finch's product, uh, future product in the, um, the browser extension? And then how did you choose like the first product to go to? So wise cards are meant to be, if you want to dig into this product overall, I buy, you know, I buy, uh, diapers every single week for my baby. So I need to figure out not only like what the best one is, but what actually goes into diapers and why they're important as a product category. That's an example of why the wise guide is important where, where, you know, it's everything from, you know, a cocktail party conversation to, did you know that diapers create X amount of waste all the way to, I want to make sure that I'm super informed. So if I don't have this browser extension in front of me or installed, I can still make informed decisions. The first couple of products we decided to do were for two reasons. The first was my first employee, Jane, who is the most amazing person in the world. She just came from parachute, um, which did textiles. And so she did a lot of, um, she was really interested in textiles. And so we started with sheets and mattresses, which was a little bit random, but really interesting just to dive into that first. Um, and then we, and then we pivoted and we really focused on consumer goods that are, um, that are disposable things that you buy often. Um, and you need to replace a lot of which there are a lot of options. And so we really just went down the, you know, rabbit hole. And so kind of like in a similar vein, but like, what does the future hold for Finch? And then like, what do you want to be remembered by uh, or remembered for either in terms of like your own personal achievements or in terms of Finch? That's such a good question. I think that Finch ideally will become that, that third party where we are not only creating our own content, but we're able to play in these different arenas of whenever there's an article about a new product or the sustainability of a certain product category, Finch is the expert on that space. Um, a little bit like, sounds random, but kind of like Rotten Tomatoes for movies, right? They are the people who score those movies. Um, and I think Finch could do that with consumer goods. Um, I think, I have to think more about that. Um, I want to be remembered by, you know, I think the climate challenge is so huge and so vast and we need so much help and it's not an either or in terms of solutions it's a both and um i think if i'm being honest what's going to move the needle more than anything are these policy changes energy grid shifts in our infrastructure etc that's not what i was put on this planet to do and so i think um i think 
I would, I would like Finch to play a role in consumer, um, consumer insights and helping individuals and brands do their part. So for people listening to this, what are, um, what are some like common mistakes that people make when trying to make an environmentally friendly purchase? And also is environmentally friendly purchase like a paradox in itself? It is a little bit. Part of what Finch tries to do is, is to tell people when they don't need certain things or buying them based on, you know, this will last a long time. I think what's been most interesting in our research has been the distinction between, um, reusable products and single use products. So one example is when you compare a cotton tote bag versus a plastic shopping bag in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, a cotton tote bag, um, needs to be used a hundred times to offset its footprint. The plastic bag is significantly less. So when a lot of people leave their reusable bag in their car or at home and when they're at the grocery store, they probably would buy a new cotton, a new reusable bag that that would seem to be the best choice in their minds. It's actually much better just to buy that plastic bag once and to remember your, your reusable one the next time. The chances of that plastic bag ending up in the ocean are actually less than the chances that that second reusable bag um, emitted significant amounts of carbon when it was being manufactured, which definitely happened. Um, and so, you know, that, that goes with also metal straws. Like if you get a 10 pack of metal straws, you need to use those every single day, basically for the next five years to offset, um, to offset their footprint. And so it's just, I don't, the challenge here is that we don't expect consumers to, to do these mathematical equations on their own. We just want to be that source where we do it all. Um, and we want to make sure that they check with us before they, they make these decisions. And so do you think that people are going to like spend time, like going back to your margarine example, um, I mean, I particularly think of margarine in terms of trans fats. So like I'll, I'll look at a, at a label when I'm buying something, like are there trans fats here? Are people going to look at the label, the carbon label or the Finch label, or are they just going to like see the score and trust it? Because like decisions are made. I mean, like behavioral science is like all over, right? And so it's like, you kind of see it, you make a decision with your heart and then you like, you pretend that your brain follows through, right? And so like, is it going to be the score that people, um, that, that people see that make them make a more environmentally friendly decision? Although whether or not that's like possible like we just talked about or is it going to be like there's something about the color scheme and label and whatever the design was that like touched their heart and they just like know this is the way to go i think we're actually still learning that and we have no idea we're learning so much in our literally this week we're doing usability testing and user research we might get to a point where the score doesn't mean anything and we just need to show three different colors or um what I, the only thing I really like to avoid is good versus bad. Sustainability is on a spectrum. There's no perfectly good versus perfectly bad. And so I do like to have that range. Um, but I don't know if the score will be, will be the thing to convince people. Um, I think it's too soon to tell. I would hope that over time, Finch would be able to integrate into other e-com sites seamlessly so that when you're on Amazon you're not looking at individual scores. Instead, you are, you know, sorting by sustainability like you do with price. Um, and so you're able to see what a specific product looks like um, with other categories. Are there any, like if we look at your credit card history purchase in the past like three months, are there any particular products that you purchased that like this was a win? Like I'm super happy. This was so much better than the next better alternative. 
Well, I don't know if this is an exact exam, a perfect example, but I just bought a last swab, um, like the Q, the Q-tips, um, which is a reusable, I think Q-tip is the brand name owned by Unilever. I can't, it's like a cotton swab, but it's a reusable one. And I have never, I haven't used a cotton swab since I've had that for now, like a year and a half. And it's super easy where I just use it. I wash it off and then call it a day. That has been really, really fun. Otherwise, I, to be honest, I'm still searching for the best shampoo bar and conditioner bar. I haven't found one that I absolutely love. Um, and so I'm really hoping to find that solution soon. And then sort of just always on the search for new, for new products. Yeah. You said shampoo and conditioner bar. What? Yes. So like you, as someone who doesn't have hair anymore, I, I'm like really not familiar. It's honestly like a bar of soap, um, but you put it in your hair. And so there's no packaging. Um, it's lighter to ship. It lasts longer. Uh, and I've used a couple of them, but they just don't, they don't, um, they're not the best for my hair. Okay. Fair enough. Thank you so much. I've had such a great time. I'd love to do kind of like a few quick fire questions for you. Sure. Um, you've been in the space for so long, so this like might not apply directly, but since becoming like, now you're like the face and CEO of Finch and founder, is there anything that you've changed in your personal life? Because now like you feel like my carbon consciousness is like exemplified to the world as the leader of this organization. Yes. I mean, the one thing that I will never, ever do is buy reusable, um, is buy a disposable water bottle. I just, I would rather be incredibly thirsty than use a plastic water bottle. Tap water is so safe in most places. Um, and there are sinks everywhere, even in airports now. And so there's really, that's something that I, I actually am super religious about, but think that it's such an easy thing for other people to make. So um, would love others to follow suit. Are there any? I also pay for, um, I pay for carbon offsets when I travel. Carbon offsets in the consumer space, um, are difficult and I don't fully trust a lot of them, but in airlines travel, um, it's actually gotten very advanced recently. And so I, I always paid off that my, my travel there. So which, how do you purchase the consumer offset through the airline or do you use another third-party service to do it? I use a couple of third-party services. Um, one is TerraPass, I think it's called. Um, and then, yeah, I have like two or three that I sort of um, use back and forth. I'm happy to send those to you. Yeah. Um, why, how did you land on those ones to choose? I just did a lot of research on them. Um, I think what makes me nervous is when, you know, trees are planted, um, to offset someone's footprint and you don't know if that tree is going to be cut down in 50 years or if a fire is going to burn it down, in which case you've done double the damage. Um, and so I just look very specifically at what types of projects these offsets are going to. And that's how I inform most of my decisions. Well, we did, um, we did an interview with Ren very early on, who's a, oh, cool. a, a consumer-based offset provider. Um, are there any like books, podcasts, articles, people um, that you look at in terms of something that like this was like, I wish everyone would read this or this person is like a sustainability hero. Like everyone should follow them on Instagram or, or TikTok or Twitter or whatever it is. Yes. A couple. I love on Instagram. I love the intersectional environmentalist. Um, she's incredible, such an inspiration. I also love Patty Gonia on, um, on Instagram who does a lot in the outdoor industry. The, my favorite podcast is how to save a planet. Um, that's Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Um, and the guy from Gimlet media, his name is escaping me, but, 
um, they write on, they, they speak on topics that I think are interesting to everybody. Like what's the real impact of an electric vehicle versus, um, versus a traditional one or, you know, are, is your own individual carbon footprint actually making that much of a difference? They just cover topics that, that I love and that are interesting for, I think a lot of people who are just getting into the space. And Patty, it's Patty Gonia. How do you spell that? P-A-T-T-I-E Gonia. Amazing. Um, obviously big fan of Dr. Ayala Elizabeth Johnson myself. Uh, dream to get her on the podcast, although uh, highly unlikely. I think his name's Alex Goldberg, but I could be totally wrong, totally wrong. That sounds right. Um, okay. We are just about finished up here. What is Finch hiring? And either way, like, what do you say to people who are interested in working at Finch? Finch is looking for some technical people right now, um, but there's not a formal job out there. Um, we just reached, we have four full-time employees, not including myself. So five full-time, which is really exciting. I don't think we'll be hiring a lot for the next couple of months, um, except for in these tech spaces. Um, and I would just, I just tell people to keep in touch. My email is, um, I mean, people can email hey at choosefinch.com and I read that pretty religiously and keep in touch with people. And so, um, people should just keep, keep checking in to see if there are openings. Is there any like a kind of particular like um, quality or core values you look for in a person? No, I mean we we have a pretty diverse group of of people working on this. Um, I think, I mean, tactically we're remote right now, and so they pretty they need to be like pretty significant self starters um, and able to to work solo for most of the time. Um, but otherwise, we just have to look at the person as a whole and and make a decision. Amazing. Um, so hey at choosefinch.com or follow them on Instagram uh, at choosefinch, right? Yes, exactly. Any, any other socials? Um, Twitter is choosefinch as well. And then LinkedIn is is just finch. And then for people who want even more, they want to check out your wise guides or they want to get the email newsletter, like what's the best way that they can kind of get involved with Finch's work? Yeah, absolutely. If you go to our website and then you sign up for the wait list or for our newsletter, you'll then get all of our uh, all of our publications. Awesome. Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a great time. Thank you so much, Nathan. It was so fun to, to be on. Thanks again. Yeah, yeah of course. Definitely go check out uh, everyone listening. Go check out, go sign up for the newsletter. Uh, go check out at Choose Finch on Twitter and Instagram, and we'll make sure to put all those in the show notes as well. Thank you. Thanks again to Lizzie for joining us today. You can connect with Lizzie via email, hey, at choosefinch.com or follow her on LinkedIn. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our socials by following at the net zero life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the net zero life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and it's no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant to be investment advice. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.